Hello, everyone. Uh, Daryl Black here. So I am really excited to be speaking to Lawrence Gonzalez, and I'll be turning it over to him shortly. But when you have the opportunity to speak to somebody that produced a book or a body of work that has, and, and I mean this literally, that has truly shaped how I interact with others, how I facilitate programs. I know that a lot of the my US partner, for example, Mission Centered Solutions, so shout out to them, use Lawrence's work as a basis for what we call human factors. And so, Lawrence, first of all, thank you, thank you, thank you for uh, agreeing to to talk with us today. And, you know, instead of me going into a long diatribe, because that will take an hour and 15 in itself, just can you maybe give folks a little rundown of, of, of what you've been up to, like your, kind of a little bit of your background and how you ended up writing 50 million books, pretty much, it seems like. You're a prolific writer. So can you uh, help us understand who is Lawrence Gonzalez? Well, to begin with, I grew up under my father, who was both a combat veteran of World War II and a scientist. Uh, he flew B-17 aircraft over Germany during the war. He was a bomber pilot <clears throat> and got shot down. And that plays into the whole saga that I talk about in Deep Survival and elsewhere actually got me started thinking about survival. But he was so badly injured when he was shot down that he couldn't go on with his military career. So he was retired, went back to school, got a PhD in biophysics and became a medical school professor. And so as a little kid, I, I was always pestering him like, well, what do you do? What do you do? And he, he would say things like, well, I do science, but it's kind of complicated. I don't know if I could explain it to you. And so I kind of thought my dad was maybe like the slow kid in school who, who couldn't tell what he did because the other kids could all explain what their fathers did. Because they're a mailman, they're, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever, accountant, something right. like that, right? Right. But um, eventually I pestered him into taking me to work with him when I was probably about eight, and I started working for him. I worked in the labs, uh, started out, you know, washing glassware. And it, eventually he taught me uh, science in the lab. So it was kind of like live science. And he was a guy who was interested in everything. And so I became uh, infected with that kind of curiosity. If you see something, so his motto was nothing is boring. If you look at something and you say, oh, that's boring. You know, I'm looking at a brick. How could that be interesting? Or I'm looking at a rock. You know, what's interesting about a rock? Well, you start getting into geology and suddenly you realize you're in a whole world of amazing things. So I grew up thinking like that. And as a consequence of this cross of science and survival, I always wanted to understand accidents. You know, why do accidents happen? And because of the flying he did, I became a pilot. I became interested in aviation accidents. I started writing about air crashes. And the National Transportation Safety Board, which investigates these crashes, would always make their reports and they'd say, you know, well, it was this mechanical malfunction that led to pilot error and the guy drove his plane into the ground. And I'd say to these investigators, you know, this guy's a really smart guy. I mean, he's got 30,000 hours experience. He's ex-military. He's got a master's in engineering. How could he make the stupidest mistake that a pilot can make and drive his plane into the ground? You know, a smart person doing a stupid thing is always a mystery. And they'd say, well, we don't know. I mean, we'd like to tell you that, but he's dead and we can't interview him. So we don't know. 
And so this was the part I thought was the most interesting piece of the puzzle. It's like, why do smart people do stupid things? And that led me down this path of studying neuroscience to find out like what's really going on in this guy's brain when he does this dumb thing. And that is essentially what deep survival is. And so over a course of people ask me, how long did it take you to write deep survival? And I say all my life. Essentially, it was the culmination of all of these years of thought, research, et cetera, et cetera. The actual typing of it only took me about nine months. But by that time, I had figured out what I wanted to say (laughs) after a very long time of of incubation. So, you know, that's kind of how we got here. So then I'm curious. So, well, first of all, Lawrence, if we're measuring books, I get that you've written one or two or five or 10, but I've written a book too. All right. So if we're going to start measuring books, let's, uh, let's drop this right now. All right. (laughs) And mine is a bestseller. It has sold as best as it could. Okay. So it's the same. Let's not talk semantics as well, but absolutely interesting origin story. And then, so how did you take that and now, you know, extrapolate that or, or extend that into the work you, you do with Firefighter Burn Foundation and, and all of those other things? Because, you know, that's not a normal trajectory, right? To now go on the circuit and, and speak. So how did you get involved into that? So, so when Deep Survival first came out, I started getting calls. I was wondering who would be interested in talking to me. I started getting calls from like hedge fund managers and deep survival for people who have not read it yet is a book about decision-making. The subhead is who lives, who dies and why. So it's about decision-making in the sense of like, why did you do that stupid thing? And it's also about the characteristics that determine who lives after doing the stupid thing and, and who doesn't. And live can mean, you know, surviving in business or it can mean surviving an illness. Or it can mean, you know, getting off the mountain you tried to climb. But I began getting calls from people like hedge fund managers, investment bankers, people who had nothing to do with the wilderness, because I use a lot of wilderness examples in deep survival. They weren't interested in the wilderness. They were interested in decision-making, and especially decision-making where there's limited information, confusing information. And that's, of course, what deep survival is about. So I would talk to them about how the decision-making system in our brain works, first of all, how it can systematically mislead us. And then once we've gotten into trouble, what the steps and characteristics are to get out of trouble. And so that's why, I mean, firefighters, uh, law enforcement, military, people who are naturally in hazardous environments want to know like, well, how do I avoid making that stupid decision that's going to kill me? And I think it's it's a good jumping off point, and then we'll deep dive into you know some of the the more specifics. But it's an important point to make with regard to we have kind of a fallacy that uh, firefighters, law enforcement, emergency managers, EMS they're they're different, right? You know they they make decisions differently, or physiologically they're different, neurologically they're different. Um, their approaches could be different, but ultimately speaking, from a physiological neurological perspective. Stress is stress. Decision-making processes are decision-making processes. And, and I, would, I would encourage people to, even though the context could be firefighting or maybe it's Mount Hood and three parties ripping off the side of a mountain or it's a rock climber or you know, it's a firefighter that's low crawling, it's important for us to recognize that it transcends all of that because we're really talking about the human organism 
and then the human brain ultimately. So I'm curious, Lawrence, um, you know, one of the things that um, you, you talk about and have talked about in Deep Survival, and, and I've seen this in my own life, <clears throat> one of the sayings that I have is navigate from where you are, not from where you wish you were. So can you speak to that? Because that is a, a, a critical tenet for you know, just trying to figure out where you're at, just trying to get your bearings and, and moving forward. So can you speak to that a little bit? Well, so in in Deep Survival, there's an appendix, and the appendix contains traits of survivors, things that I singled out from taking many, many cases and saying what, what's in common of these cases. And the very first thing most people do in an emergency is they deny it. They say, this can't be really happening. So you break your leg in on top of a mountain in Peru in snow, and you say, well, maybe it's just brain. So the first item in this list in the in deep survival is perceive and believe. And it means that, you know, the direct evidence of your senses is usually going to be involved in doing anything about it. So we're right now in the middle of, of this pandemic that was caused initially by people denying that it was happening and just dismissing it as, you know, I, I don't think that's really important. And there's no shortage of information in this world about the fact that this pandemic was inevitable. We knew it was going to happen sometime, sooner or later. And then when it did happen, everybody said it's not happening for long enough to let it get out of control. So that's that's a perfect example of this, this process that I'm talking about. Um, so I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but what, why is this so difficult for people? Why is that that why is that often the first kind of step where it's that denial or maybe it's a job layoff or, or, you know, just something not going right from, from your experience. Why is that? It's pretty universal. I would submit. So the, the way that the, there's a system of perception and I give a whole talk about this uh, to corporate people mostly, but to lots of different groups. And in fact, search and rescue groups I've given this talk to is essentially about how our perception works to shape decision-making. And when I say decision-making, I'm talking about doing something. So you see, um, you know, I look out my backyard and I'm sitting there reading a book in a chair and I'm comfortable and I see a um, mad dog come down the alley. I perceive this, I understand it's a threat. I get up, I go inside. That's, you know, I've made a decision by doing something. So a decision leads to an action. Uh, it doesn't have to be an intellectual thing, and mostly it's not an intellectual thing. And there's a whole range of perceive and act systems that we use. So if, if you have an itch, you scratch it. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to deliberate about it. And this automatic system is the rule rather than the exception in our behavior throughout our lives. We don't think of it that way. We think of ourselves as logical creatures, and indeed, we can use logic. And logic means doing something in a stepwise fashion. You go to Ikea, you buy a nightstand, it comes in a box, it's all in pieces. What do you do? Well, you open the instructions, and if you do each one of these steps one by one, you'll get a nightstand. Now, no other animal can do this. A chimpanzee can try for you know a million years and never get it right. Uh, but we can do it because we can do logic, step by step. That's a very skimpy facility, though, 
And mostly we don't do that. That's not how we make decisions. So oftentimes when I give this talk, I stand up and I start by saying, raise your hand if you've ever known someone who's made a really bad decision in a love relationship. And of course, if you're, if you're over 13, you raise your hand, right? <laughs> and, and so um, why, why did that person do that? Is that person stupid? No, that's not. The, the person did it because we do things automatically. And, and love is one of the most powerful of the automatic motivators we have. And we don't know why we do it. But once we start accepting that that's the rule, automatic behavior without having to deliberate, we start to realize that, you know, it shapes our world, literally. And so we're evolved to learn an environment, behave correctly for this environment. And if the environment changes, we, we deny it because we're already adapted to it. And because it's part of our automatic system, we're not used to thinking. I was talking to my brother yesterday. We were talking about how hard it is to think about driving when you're driving. Because for most of us who are older than driver's license age, it becomes automatic very quickly. So you can be driving and talking on the phone and drinking a latte and correcting the kids in the back seat, all while missing the parked cars somehow automatically and not running people over automatically. But that can be very dangerous too, because you can miss things. Um, I saw a guy killed because a driver was driving automatically and hit a, a man on a scooter because um, the man on the scooter wasn't part of the system this guy was imagining he was in and appeared out of nowhere. And so, so we were talking about how, you know, isn't it better if you're driving a 4,000 pound vehicle to be thinking about what you're doing so that you deliberate a little bit before doing something stupid like that and how very, very hard it is to do that. Mm. So part of our perceptual system does two things. First of all, everything turns into a, what I call a mental model. Mm -hmm. We have a, a one-year-old grand granddaughter and she, the first time she saw a dog, she got all excited. This is a dog, you know, she couldn't say it, but somebody said doggy. And the next time she saw a dog it was like, oh, the doggy. And after a few times, it became obvious that she knew what dogs were in a general way. She had a generalized picture in her brain of a dog and it didn't matter if it was a Chihuahua or a Great Dane or a Lhasa Apso. She knew it was a dog and she was gonna never, never mistake a dog for a goat or a goat for a dog or a cat. She would always know dogs because she has in her brain this idealized model of what a dog is, which I call a mental model. And then the brain gives us the ability to do things with these mental models. So we learn what I call behavioral scripts. Mm -hmm. We can do things like driving the car is a behavioral script. Some of the neuroscientists call these fixed action patterns. Or habits to the lay person. Uh, they are habits, mm -hmm. they are habits. That's exactly right. And as part of the brain that's studied as habit learning, there's a whole field of neuroscience that's habit learning. Um, and so we learn to tie our shoes. And this is a miraculous system you try to teach, we have another grandson who's four, try to teach him to tie his shoe. It's very frustrating. You have to go over it step by step, little tiny steps. Again, like the Ikea part of the brain that puts the nightstand together. You take these little steps and do them one by one and you finally get the bow. 
But then one day, after doing it many, many times, he suddenly discovers that he knows how to tie his shoe. And something that had required all of his attention, all of a sudden requires none of his attention, which is great if you're tying your shoe, not so great if you're driving a car. Right. Now, if you, were able to tie, if you were able to tie your shoe while you're driving, that would be impressive, right? But that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> That would, no one, any, do not try that at home, folks. I just wanted to just make sure that. So now, now right. Lawrence, so before we go too much further, you know, it was really interesting and I, I wanted to, I don't want to dismiss it because even the language we use. So even in your example was a mad dog coming down the alley, you know, it, by the time it reaches cognitive or, or cognition, it's already gone through that mental model and those, those, <clears throat> those filters and and it's important, depending on what my filter was, all dogs are great. They're all friendly. Or maybe I had a poor encounter with one and all dogs are bad. So even just the language we use and how quickly we need to recognize that, to your point, we're not logical thinkers. And yet a lot of people think that they are. So what I'm hearing you say then is, is we, we are creating mental models and we're, you know, we're given those, given the mental models kind of early on, but then we start to interpret and we create our own and morph them. But how quickly that we form those and how significant they have in our perception, which is the very first step in decision-making. So it's it's really critical for people to recognize that if we don't have good, we call it situation awareness. If you don't have that, then you can make the best decision in the world, but if it's based on the wrong perception, then you're not going right. to be getting the outcome that that you would like, and and it's a very complicated process. And it, it's important to recognize too that to take the example of the mad dog. Um, I live in a nice, quiet suburb where lots and lots of people have dogs, and they're mostly friendly. And chances are, if I were sitting out there and there was a mad dog coming along, my first thought would be denial. My first thought would be, well, somebody's dog is. It, won't, it doesn't make any difference. And so the, the thing that you call situational awareness, and you can also call mindfulness, and you can also call just pay attention, mm -hmm. <laughs> pay attention to what's going on, um, and be attuned to changes in your environment would give you some clues that this wasn't an ordinary dog. And this is especially true in, you know, most of us live in, circumstances that never get dangerous. And probably the most dangerous thing most of us do is driving a car, actually. But if you're in a dangerous profession, such as firefighting or law enforcement, um, things are a little different for you. And that, that being especially aware and attuned to changes in your environment becomes vital. And, and so now that's a really good segue to the conversation with regard to stress and staying calm and and all of those things, because ultimately speaking, stress has a real dire impact on our ability to make decisions and, and communicate effectively and so on and so forth. And I want people to recognize that, like we kind of let off with, neurologically, stress is stress is stress, and our reactions to it are the same. So don't discount the stress that you're feeling when you're going into a, a big meeting with a VP and you're going to be doing a project like that stress, that reaction is real. And even though no. it's not a physical threat, right? It's not like the VP is 
physically going to, you know, pummel you, but that stress is very much the same, those reactions. And so can we speak to that? So from a leadership perspective, whether it be emergency services or corporate, what what happens? And and I'm going to start off with a very quick story of my own, and then you can kind of insert your expertise on it. So tornado in central Alberta, and uh, as many as 100 people were missing and believed deceased. So we went there, search and rescue, we deployed, and I was our team leader. So I walked in, everyone else was outside this uh, campground that had been ripped apart by a tornado. I received my briefing, everything's great. So I call back to our team and I say, yeah, come on in and I'll brief you up. Now, Lawrence, I hadn't seen the site yet. It was just up on a hill where the command posts were. And I, I remember I'm like, oh, shit, I should probably check it out. Like I haven't even seen the site yet. So I walked up to the edge of the edge of the the crest of the hill and physiologically i like my breath was taken away like literally I, I i was frozen so which is very much the same kind of feeling as somebody walking onto a stage fear of public speaking or somebody going into uh, a burning building or, or something like that so can you speak to what was going on with me at that particular time as i walk up to the edge of that the crest of that hill and i look across yeah. and what, what's happening there You've opened up a huge subject and an important one. And um, so to begin with, let's understand that we talked about reason earlier. Reason and emotion are like a seesaw. So, and by emotion, I mean stress, because that's a form of one, a manifestation of stress. So, you know, if, if emotion is up here, Reason's going to be down here. And if you can somehow bring reason back up, you can bring emotion down. Um, so that's a, a basic, it's, it's an oversimplification, but it works. And when you are, there are stages to stress and, and all mammals have a, a series of responses that basically go like um, social. The first thing is social. We can see this if you have, if you take your puppy to the park and there's a bigger dog there and the two of them collide, the puppy's gonna roll over on its back to signal the big dog, I'm negotiating with you. You know, I'm exposing my neck. This is a, a lethal point of biting here. And it signals the, the big dog, then like, okay, you're the big dog, I'm the puppy, let's, let's get over it. If that doesn't work and the big dog attacks, the second stage is fight or flight, it's struggle. So you, you automatically struggle to try to get away. If that doesn't work, the third stage is freezing, which is an ancient uh, reptilian heritage that we still have in us. We have the ability to freeze. If you go back and look at the bombing that occurred at the Atlanta Olympics, I think it was 90, 1996, mm -hmm. there's a video where there's a big crowd of people and the bomb goes off and everybody drops you know, to, to a knee. It's like they all freeze and then they run. But freezing is a very natural response. So if you are confronted by something that's extremely high stress, chances are you'll freeze first because you've already gone through the other stages so fast, there's nothing else for you to do. And you're helpless, essentially. It's a, it's a helpless response. And, and then you try to get out of that as quickly as possible. Physiologically, there's all kinds of things going on there. Um, there's basically a fairly long explanation of there's a bundle of nerves that comes out of the base of the 
brain called the vagus nerves and they wrap around your organs and they can actually slow down your heart rate. They can uh, make your muscles not move. And in extreme cases, they can kill you by lowering your metabolism so much that unlike a reptile who's cold blooded, we need a lot of oxygen and uh, to keep things going. And so it's, it's a very real response um, and everybody's capable of it for the most part. But that, that's what was happening. And, and so then, you know, to, to tie that, the, our next step will be talking about how we can short circuit that if possible. But I guess then that speaks to our perception and the mental model, right? So you're looking for pattern recognition. You don't see the pattern or at least what you're seeing doesn't fit the mental model that you had. So that signals to the brain, correct me if I'm wrong, that there's some sort of a threat, there's a change, there's something going on. And then that elicits that stress response, which could be fight, flight, or freeze. Would that be kind of a, a reasonable um, yeah. kind of sequence? Yeah, and the, the thing about, you know, it, so we are creatures who imitate. That's how we know I'm sure we've all had this experience. You go to visit a friend and you look at his face and you go like, what's wrong? You mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. Something happened. I can really, you know, I can feel it that, that somebody died or something really bad. Your girlfriend left you or I don't know what, but, but we communicate this way constantly. And it's usually on a subtle, less dramatic level, but we read each other and we imitate each other. So, if I go over there and my best friend is in distress, I'm going to be in distress too. And we all know this from experience, like let's say you're in the kitchen with your wife and you're cutting onions and she cuts the tip of her finger off. You're going to go, you know, like this, and you're going to feel it. And so we, we all feel each other's states. If you see somebody injured, you're going to have the same reaction. So, so people who are first responders, firefighters, that sort of thing, um, you get a lot of trauma in, in your work because you're seeing people hurt and it's innate in your emotional system to respond as if you're being hurt. And so this is part of, you know, when you saw that scene, it was so shocking because you internalized it right away. And, and there's no getting around that except training and experience. And even that doesn't get you around it. It just allows you to act uh, and you may wind up, you know, if you act enough and, and you're of a certain kind of makeup, you may wind up with PTSD as a result of it. <clears throat> but this is an inherent part of, of doing this kind of work. And the only way to, to uh, deal with it is to train and gain experience. And so with that, and it's interesting you should say that because I've defined that having been on hundreds of missions, Katrina, Rita, you know, Canada's two largest disasters, list goes on and on. And, and I do recognize that somewhere during each incident, and I was a project manager for 10 years. So it was the same, even walking into that, you know, VP meeting, I recognize <laughs> that there is that moment where it is that sense of overwhelm. But to your point, what I've learned just through experience and training is how to overcome that. So I think it's important to recognize that don't beat yourself up for feeling that way, right? Like that is a normal physiological, neurological reaction. That's just part of our DNA. And whereas a lot of people are like, ah, oh, you know what? I'm fearless. I'm fearless. Well, I think that's, I'll, I'll call <laughs> bullshit on that because 
There's no such thing, in my opinion. It's about being courageous, seeing the fear and uh, acting in, in spite of it. So if that, you're not afraid, you don't appreciate the severity of the situation you're in. But just to make the link to the corporate meeting that you referenced, so why is that stressful? Why should you be stressed out by that? Because there's no threat, really, is there? Well, yes, there is. Because one of the essentials of our type of creature, in addition to mimicking each other and reading each other's emotions, is that we must be part of the group. It's an essential survival matter. If you're out of the group, you're basically dead. You can't survive without the group. And this is in, embedded in our evolutionary history. You know, today in a, in a modern world, you could survive without the group, but in a sense, not really. If you're in a corporate setting and you're employed there and you're making a, you know, a pitch to the boss, you could be out of the group suddenly, out of a job, certainly. And so it's a, it's a very gut-wrenching thing to think you're risking your status in the group. Um, and it's a survival matter. So you're going to feel the same way as if you're facing some kind of physical danger. You know, and then that feeds into our innate sense of am I enough, which is kind of one of those basic human conditions that we all suffer from. So then, you know, that, so we're always evaluating that. And then I suppose to take the, the threat a little bit further, if I do poorly in that meeting, maybe I'm not going to be part of the group, but then I'm not going to be able to provide for my family. I'm going to get laid off now and, and all of those things. And I think and now, so Lawrence, I wanted to talk to you about, it's a good jumping off point to the fact that, you know, we use the word reaction a lot, stress reactions or like habits are reactions, but how can we move from reacting to stress or having a stress reaction to a stress response where maybe, you know, the amygdala is going to do what the amygdala does, right? It's going to hijack all day long. That's its job. And I appreciate it because it stops me from getting hit by a bus when I walk across the street. I appreciate that. But in modern society, we're seeing obviously the physical threats are less <clears throat> than they were. But so how do we move from a spot of, of reacting to stress, just using our, our default wiring? And how do we how do we short circuit that so that we can actually take control of our emotions and not let it you know, have this cascading effect of poor decisions and bad communication and lack of connection because under stress, you know, it becomes about me. So, you know, where's some thoughts around how we can actually tangibly short circuit, you know, our, our stress reaction and move to a response. So my first re response to that is to go and become a Zen monk and live in a cave. Right. But I'm only being half serious <clears throat> or half joking because what you have to do is practice in your day-to-day -day life, your non-emergency life, what you want to have happen when you're challenged under stress. And so you don't invent new behaviors in an emergency. When, when there's an emergency, you're going to do what you've done before and it's going to reveal to you what you've been practicing all your life. And so there's a chapter in uh, Deep Survival, for example, called We're All Gonna Fucking Die. Mm -hmm. And in this chapter, there's a boatload of people doing a, a routine yacht delivery. The boat sinks in a hurricane and they wind up in a small dinghy. And two, two of them are screaming, basically, we're all gonna die. And two of them are trying to think, like, 
what do we do now? We don't have any supplies. We don't even have any water. How are we going to make this, you know, come out okay? And I say in the book, if this were a movie, the two guys who were screaming were all going to die, you would immediately know those are the two who are going to die. Because we're familiar. <laughs> one who's calm is the one who's going to survive. And so... And so you have to begin examining your life. Part of part of situational awareness, which I call, you know, mindfulness, is examining your own life for the ingredients you're going to get in an emergency. So how do you respond in a traffic jam? How do you respond when you stub your toe? How do you respond when things aren't going your way? You know, you look at the stock market, it's just crashed. Your 401k is in the toilet. What do you do? And I think that that, you know, ultimately victors and victims, right? So I I see it in in my own life and and in those, those that have the life is happening to me will be the two screaming, we're going to die. And the others are saying, what is this trying to teach me? Uh, Life is happening for me are probably what I'm hearing you say would would have a higher likelihood of, of dealing with stress a little bit more effectively. Right. And psychologists call this locus of control. Mm -hmm. The ones who are screaming, we're all going to die, think things are happening to them in the world. That's the way they view the world. They have an external locus of control. Those who have an internal locus of control are saying, this is an impossible situation, it seems to me. However, I have some ideas about how I'm going to deal with it. And I think it may be an opportunity for me to learn something too. So I'm going to take the steps that I know how to take and see if I can get myself out of this. And it's two very different ways of looking at the world. We're all familiar with the person I call a whiner, who is constantly complaining that things are happening uh, to him or her. And, you know, that's not a good survival stance. And so then that's more of a systemic, like kind of a macro view of it. So now let's take it into the moment. And uh, just to, to... you know, set this up a bit. So my coping strategy is stopping, consciously stopping and realizing, okay, relax, you're overwhelmed right now, or you're having feelings of stress. Key point, I'm not stressed out. I'm actually having feelings of stress because you talk about locus of control. To me, I can actually now control those feelings versus this being stressed out. But that's a conversation for another episode probably. But what I do is I take two deep breaths and um you know and there's there's physiology and neurology around that so what are some specific strategies or tactics that that you would suggest to somebody they're about to walk into the boardroom or they are going to that burning building or whatever that might be so with your expertise what what does that look like well well breathing is well known for its efficacy in this way and so learning to calm yourself by breathing whatever the circumstances is a good thing. Um, And we should all have that in reserve for times of serious stress, but it's going to come to you only if you do it, you know, before you're in in an emergency. Um, And, and certainly having this, this attitude in general in your life that you can control your environment and that you can learn from your environment and that adversity equals opportunity. This is another important concept. Something bad happens, hey, you know, like the stock market crashed whenever it was in March. And I looked and I thought, wow, this is like bargain basement time. Let's buy some stocks. 
And then it, it came back <clears throat> pretty quickly, not all the way, but, you know, things to, to see the world, I mean, bad things are happening in the world all the time. And to see them as opportunities changes your way of viewing them. Uh, in the case of getting beyond immediate stress and learning to master it, it's just practice. It's practice, practice, practice. And that includes, you know, I was, I was talking to my 17 year old son the other day and he said, you never yell. And I said, yeah, I, I never yell. And I said, I wasn't always that way, but I, I learned that yelling doesn't really help. And especially when it comes to children, it's even worse than just not helping. It's destructive. And so when the kids were little, and somebody'd spill milk at the dinner table, I wouldn't get angry. I would say, oh, you know what? Everybody smil spills milk when they're little kids and it just happens and you'll eventually figure out how not to do that. Let's, here's some paper towels, let's clean it up. Whereas I can remember seeing scenes where somebody spills milk and the parent starts yelling and it's like, that's not a good way to learn to be calm. And so all of the little details and this again is mindfulness. All the little details in our life are there to teach us these very important lessons that later will become important in an emergency. And, and that's, well, first of all, the word mindfulness, if you were to say that 10 or 15 years ago, literally they'd be like, did you just come out of that cave? Zen, <laughs> you know, monk, like the word mindfulness, like that's, you know, so let me guess, Lawrence, before this, you were doing hot yoga or whatever, right? But I'm really, I'm really, I'm really glad that you said that because I think there's, there's, that's been practiced for thousands of years. And so I just wanted to really, um, you know, unpack that. But now that also leads me to the, ultimately from a leadership perspective, there's, there's things that we can control and can't control. And we teach these a lot in leadership programs and there's danger and opportunity, but also the impact that a leader has on the team and the group dynamics, whether it be the family unit or the unit on the fire ground or your corporate team. Um, it's important for people to be aware that leaders have a direct impact on how their teams interact and, and the amount of stress and the emotion and reason balance uh, that's met. So can you speak to, to that? You know, because to your point, the, the yacht people and, and plane crashes and all those, you're talking about group dynamics that really supersede the individual's ability. That just adds another layer of complexity that you have to navigate. And as a leader, I think that's really, really important. So can you speak to the impact that a leader has on the dynamic of the team? Because in my opinion, it's pretty direct. Yes, it is. And it goes to what I was saying about yelling at children. Um, you elicit as a leader, you have power, first of all, that's important. And to an extent, people who are working for you are your subordinates. And so the same dynamics that I talked about with the puppy and the big dog apply. And so the big dog has, has an ability to, when the puppy rolls over and says, okay, you're the big dog, I'm the puppy, I'm gonna cooperate, that's an opportunity to play. And if the big dog is a good dog, it will simply start running around and the puppy will chase it and then they'll chase each other, they'll nip at each other, and they will constantly be doing a behavior that's like glancing back, the big dog will glance back to see if the puppy's there, 
puppy will glance back to see if the big dog's there. And they're signaling each other that this is not combat, this is play. And all mammals do this. Reptiles don't play. Mammals play. So if you go in the pet shop, you'll see in the, in the reptile area, what do you see? Nothing. They're holding still. That's the freezing response. You go in the mammal area, you'll see the gerbils tumbling around together and the kittens and all that. So that's what we do. And a leader has to recruit that instinct to the good of the group. So if a leader is being a jerk to you, if a leader is wallowing in power and trying to frighten you and put all these negative emotions into you, you will respond with all these negative emotions. And not only will it decrease your efficiency and effectiveness in the world, but it'll make you hate his guts mm -hmm. and the outcome's not going to be good. So, I mean, it's, there's no great secret to the wisdom that, that honey attracts more, you know, bees than vinegar. Um, and so this is a, a simple formula for getting people to do what you need done in your corporate setting is be nice, be fun, be interesting. Be empathetic. Be all those things that the two dogs are when they play. And I think we spoke off camera about this, where you, as a leader, you have to ask yourself, is your team being compliant or are they being committed? And those that's right. just, as we said, a grand canyon of difference. And so what I heard you say then is if you want a committed group, treat them like people, respect them. And, and it's important also to recognize that as leaders, we actually set the tone. So we have to respect first. We have to be vulnerable yeah. first. We have to be empathetic first, be compassionate first. And, right. and I think, you know, you, you alluded to it where unfortunately the, the bully, the intimidating leader, one, that's the mental model that has been created probably in their environment, whether it be, you know, at home and then it's reinforced at work and whatnot. But the challenge is, is that gets results though, Lawrence, like, like we said, mm -hmm. I, I tell people and they, they jump up and they get shit done. So I get results and I'm not here to be liked Lawrence, right? I don't need to be liked. I don't need to be their friend. I need to tell them to do things, but it's important to recognize that you're actually putting people under stress. Would, would that be accurate? Yes, you're, you're putting people under stress, you're making them less efficient. And there are models of this, of course, in, um, you know, military situation, maybe, or a factory um, assembly line, where you demand certain performance from people. But underneath that, there's another layer, which is, are you being mistreated? And therefore, are you more likely to do something that will screw things up? Not, a, not even on purpose, but I mean, and so I, I always say in corporate settings, I say your ratio of listening to talking should be pretty high because what does someone want, especially someone who's a subordinate? You want to be heard, you want to be known, you want to be seen. It's part of our group instinct. In fact, in groups of apes, um, the leader is the guy who gets the most glances from other apes. And I don't mean that's the cause of leadership, but in terms of making eye contact, the the leader is the one who is looked at the most. They're constantly checking the leader to see what, you know, what's the status? How does he feel? What am I supposed to do? Blah, blah, blah. And this is a very important thing. So if the leader looks at you and says, hey, you know, I'd really like to know what you think. This is a huge thing. This is a great thing. And then if he actually listens to what you have to say, 
So there are many techniques for making this happen without, you know, having a pizza party every day. Every day, you have to be attuned to people, and some, frankly, some leaders are not capable of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 it's interesting because you can tell that it's a square peg in a round hole because they've been told to do that. Hey, you you need to listen to your team. You need to give them feedback, and and again, it's sometimes like monkeys looking at a wristwatch. Where I know the industry, you know, to your IKEA point, there are some people that can put that stuff together pretty quick. You know, even though they do have the instructions, but there are some that's just kind of intuitive. And and I think that when you talk about engaging and and having a committed workforce and committed team, that oftentimes is kind of there's a lot of nuances around that yeah. that we have to recognize. And something also that I'm taking out of this, Lawrence, is I have to go to the off-leash area and start paying more attention. I have to go to the zoo and watch apes. <sighs> Man, I'm exhausted. I got to go on a yacht and just be on a small dinghy before I learn all this. So I got a lot of work I got to do. So <laughs> we're going to have to cut this shorter. Man, oh man. And, and actually, and, and just to, to wrap up, Lawrence, and tr- oh my goodness, we could talk for so much. And then I wanted to ask you, with all your body of work, all the time and commitment you put in, like, why do you give a shit about this, Lawrence? Like, why does it matter? Because you could have just wrote a couple books kind of, you know, maybe do a few blog posts and so on and so forth. But by everyone that I've spoken to, you are so giving and, and so gracious and humble. What, why does this matter? I think, I think it again starts with my father. My father um, was almost killed in the war. And he told me once, uh, he, he had his wings shot off and the plane started spinning. You know, it was upside down and spinning and broke apart. And so he had a, a good long time to think about his own death because he was his wing was shot off at 27,000 feet. And, I, um, and so he fell 27,000 feet without a parachute and survived it. <laughs> this, is, this is in deep survival, I tell this story. <clears throat> but I had asked him, and again, I was a kid. I remember how old, 10 or 11 maybe. You know, what, what were you thinking, you know, as you went down? And he told me about, you know, being sad and thinking of, that he'd never see his mother again, that he he and my mother were engaged, not yet married, and that he'd never see her again and things like that. And and then he woke on the ground, he passed out at some point, woke on the ground alive. And he said he was like giddy with glee that he was alive, that, like he was euphoric. Part of that may have been shock, of course, but but I think he came back to life with an attitude of like, I'm going to help people. I'm going to do good things. And he became a college professor. He was very popular. I remember watching him when I was just, I don't know, eight or nine. I went to one of his big lecture classes and he got up on the podium and said, fellow students. And after the lecture, I said, dad, why do you say fellow students? You're the professor. He was like, no, I'm, I'm a student. I mean, we should be students all our lives. And so he taught me this way of of looking like, like, enjoy your life and do something good for people. Cause there's plenty of evil to go around in the world. And so if you can just, so I'm 72 now, right? And I can look at my life and say, well, I guess I'm not Hitler. You know, I must, I'm doing something right, I hope. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I so can tell you that. 
Right. And, and it's, it's a, it's a acts of service, right. You know, and, and ultimately, right. and I try to raise my son this way, where if we give more into society than we take away, I think ultimately the world will be a better place. And whatever that giving right. into society is, everyone has their zone of genius. And I really wanted to thank you for continuing to act, um, portray acts of service and, and really walking the walk of what humbleness looks like because um, I've known a lot of people with a fraction of what you know that are always the smartest people in the room. So um, I really appreciate you taking the time here, Lawrence. And um, You're welcome. 